Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful for this time, Lord God. It's a precious time for us to get together and to be able to hear from you. I pray, Father God, that you would empower Alex to effectively communicate your word. We ask, Lord God, that you still each heart. We ask that you speak, for we desire to hear what you have to say. Move us to do those things which not only please you, but are in keeping with the principles of your kingdom. There's a world that we need to reach, and you are the most effective means by which we can reach them. So use us, bless us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Dean. All right, we started a series a couple of weeks ago for Easter called Kinetic. And the idea is that throughout the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, we find time and time again, Jesus moves and interacts with someone in a way that creates movement in their life. So the movement of Jesus creates movement in somebody else's life, and it seems to generate this kind of kinetic energy. And the, the point for us is, if we're serious about following Jesus, if we want to have a life-changing relationship with God, then it ought to result in movement in our life. The title this morning, I don't even remember what's on the program, it's either Throwing Stones or Throwing Rocks, and I hope for most of you that evokes a recollection of a story about a woman who was caught in adultery. It's a really powerful story that's been influential, not just in Christian circles, but it's made an impact in literature, non-spiritual literature. It's known in cultures all over the world. So if you were to say to someone, let he who is without sin, they could finish that sentence right? Throw the first stone. And so there's this turn of phrase that like, hey, you got to be careful who you throw rocks at, which is kind of like, you know, we shouldn't judge people. That's a shorthand way of saying it. It comes from this passage. There's another really memorable saying at the end of this passage that says, go and sin no more. Great line. I mean, that idea, again, it permeates literature that has nothing to do with spirituality. It's a recurring theme of you can leave your past behind and there is hope and a future for you. So this morning, we're going to start by reading this passage of Scripture, and you can follow along on the screen with me. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, that's a powerful story. Not many verses, not a lot of action, but it just has so much impact to it. So we want to take a few minutes and kind of work through it verse by verse. But first, especially if you're looking at a modern translation, like the New International Version, there's a weird disclaimer 
before you get to this. So when you get ready to read this passage, you see this in brackets, and it says, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have these verses, John 7, 53 to 8, 11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7, 36, John 21, 25, Luke 21, 38, Luke 24, 53. What the heck does that mean? Well, let me try to do this quickly. You really need to talk to somebody like Bill Russell, who is uh, leading our Bible class on Sunday afternoons. It's a complicated issue. There are people who spend their whole lifetime, 60 or 70 years of their careers as scholars, studying the textual background of what is our Bible and how do we know what part should be included and which shouldn't. But the kind of shorthand version of this is Jesus' ministry spans three years, around 30 A.D., so almost 2,000 years ago. Within a couple of decades of his ministry, his closest friends like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have begun to take the stories that everybody has heard. Everybody around Israel knows, like, Jesus was the guy that healed people. And you remember that time he cast demons out of a woman and he healed this woman who had been bleeding for years and he raised that guy Lazarus. So within less than two decades, the first of the biographies of Jesus is written. It's close enough to the actual events that if there was a problem with them, if there was a dispute, then it would have been easy to resolve because there were plenty of people around that witnessed this. It'd be like if I said, you know, John F. Kennedy wasn't actually assassinated. He's living in a small town in New Mexico. I'm going to write a book and tell the story. You'd go, that's stupid. We can go to New Mexico to that town and find out if he's there. There were people we can talk to who are still alive, who treated him at the hospital or who saw him in the ambulance. So you could easily dispute it. So once these stories about Jesus began to be assembled and put into written form, John's is actually much later. His is towards the end of the first century when he's an old guy, probably 70 or 80 A.D. So maybe, what is that, 60 years, 50, 60 years after Jesus' ministry. But it echoes so much of what is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, as these are written, people go, wait, wait, wait. You guys in your town, you've got what Mark wrote about Jesus. You've got his written. Can we send a guy over there to copy that? They didn't have a photocopier. They can take a picture with their cell phone. So a guy grabs a big stroll and something to write with, and he just copies it word for word. And he takes it back to the Christians in his town. And then somebody goes, wait, wait, you guys have a copy of what Matthew wrote? Can we get a copy of that? So now there are copies of copies, and there are literally now tens of thousands of manuscript fragments that scholars can look at today and study. We do not have any of the original writings. Those would be called the autographs, and we don't have those. But we have so many copies, I mean, many, many times more than any other ancient writing. We have, I mean, like 20 times as many manuscripts for the Bible as we do for William Shakespeare's plays. Okay, so we have way more certainty. So Bible scholars would say we have about 99.5% certainty of the content of the Bible. The other 5%, there's some question marks. It's about like spelling. So we compare one manuscript to the other, and one says Bethesda and one says Bethsaida. Hmm, not really a big deal. Sometimes the punctuation is different. Sometimes it's a question of was it a woman or some women? I don't know. Some say this, some say that. Or it could be a word that's not commonly used. And so you'll find like a footnote at the bottom of the page and it'll say an old woman or some translations read a widow. Okay, it's still pretty much, you know, kind of the same thing, but we're just not sure. But in this case, there is enough of a question about this passage that modern biblical scholars said, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
King James, published back in 1600, that King James version of the Bible, that was just based on the stuff that had come before it. We've gone back and examined new evidence. We've used new archaeological discoveries. And we found that not all of the manuscripts include this passage of Scripture. And those that do don't always put it right in this place. Some of them include it in other parts of John. Some include it in other parts of Luke. It's like, we don't know where to put it. So this is my take on it. I appreciate the fact that scholars said, look, we just want to be honest with you. We can't tell you for sure whether this was actually intended to be in the Bible. So that's good to know. Secondly, I would say you want to compare anything like this with other stories that are in the Bible, other teachings about how Jesus acted and what Jesus said, and let's see if it corresponds with what we know of him in other places. If this was a story about, and Jesus met with aliens and gave them a baby so they could take it to, you know, it's like, what? Where is that coming from? That doesn't fit the story. But this passage, I'm going to try to show you, lines up really well with other passages. So I cannot tell you for sure that this passage belongs right here in the book of John. I can't tell you that John wrote it, but I can tell you that it certainly sounds like the authentic Jesus. So let's dig in and let's talk about this. The story takes place at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was one of the many feasts that Israel had. People would come from all over the country to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast in the fall. It's near the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, and as the sun is rising, Jesus is already in the temple teaching people. There are people all over Israel who have heard about this new rabbi who is like crazy. He does miraculous stuff. He's clearly a man of God. While we're in town, we need to hear his teachings. So like other rabbis, Jesus sits down to teach. And unlike other rabbis, Mark 1.22 tells us that the people were amazed at his teaching for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. So Jesus was way different than the other teachers of the law, the rabbis and the priests who kind of taught us like, hey, you should do this. God's going to be mad at you. Jesus brought it to life. Jesus explained it in a way that made sense to real life and to common people. He didn't have to be like a religious expert or wear a special robe to show how spiritual you were. He would break it down and say, you know, the kingdom of heaven is kind of like a mustard seed. Or the kingdom of heaven is like seeds that are scattered on dirt. And they were like, I get that. I can understand that. I'm a farmer. So Jesus brought the scripture to life, and people gathered, and he is teaching, and they're eagerly listening. That didn't go over so well with the temple leaders. The, the Pharisees, who were like the political leaders in the Jewish party and the teachers of the law, they hated it because Jesus was getting more attention than they were. And he was saying things that contradicted them, that made them look bad. And as the crowds grew larger, these religious leaders grew more frustrated. So the teachers... And the Pharisees decided that they were going to try to entrap Jesus. And we see a number of attempts through the Gospels of this. So Jesus is teaching. The crowds are big. People are listening to his every word. And all of a sudden, there's a big commotion in the back. There's like people pushing through the crowd and an uproar. And like, what's going on? And somebody's screaming. like, oh my gosh! And, and now the crowd parts. And all of the religious leaders with their cool robes and big hats and you know, whatever other fancy stuff they had, they're there. And they throw a woman in front of Jesus. And she's obviously mortified and ashamed. We don't know if she's like wrapped in a sheet or maybe she's got a, a robe thrown on, but her hair is all messed up. She's been crying. She might have bruises on her arms from being manhandled by these religious leaders like, you're going with us. 
It's unlikely, even though they say, we discovered in the act of adultery, it's kind of weird that at, you know, 4.45 in the morning, they would know where to find somebody in the act of adultery. What's more likely is they discovered her, and then they held her and waited for the opportune time to maximize the drama with Jesus. So they wait till Jesus has a big crowd, they bring her in, and they say to Jesus, this woman is clearly guilty, she was caught in the act, the law of Moses says, we must stone her, what do you say? That's a trap. They're thinking that if Jesus says, okay, that's the law of Moses, yes, we should stone her, then it kind of ruins his credibility with all the people that he's talked about, love and mercy and grace and all of that stuff. Jesus is the guy that's hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors and people that have no business being in spiritual places. And this would discredit him among the popular people. Now, if on the other hand he says, hey, let's show this woman mercy, maybe they're extenuating circumstances. They can go, oh, you're soft on crime. You think you're better than Moses? You think you have the authority to, to circumvent what Moses told us to do? But we actually find out that there was no interest in morality here. There was no interest in spirituality here. They were trying to trap Jesus. And they're trying to pit Jesus who clearly is a man of God against Moses, who is the lawgiver, Moses who split the Red Sea, Moses, Ten Commandment Moses. This is like Batman versus Superman, okay? It's like epic titans battle, and who are you going to pick, Jesus or Moses? The first thing that I notice here is that their motive is political. It's about power and influence. They don't really care about this woman. They don't actually care about adultery or holiness. They're trying to discredit Jesus. And in fact, they're using this poor woman and they're willing to kill her if it serves their purpose. They're objectifying her, using her as a means to an end. How despicable is that for those who are supposed to be the religious leaders of the country? To value so little the dignity of an image bearer of God, even if she is guilty. She was a tool they could use, even if it meant a miserable, horrifying death. Another problem here is that they don't apply the law fairly. Most of you have noticed at this point, it's like, wait a minute, wasn't there a guy involved? I've heard it takes two to tango. Where's the guy? Well, we don't know. It could be that he was a prominent businessman who offered to make a nice contribution, or maybe it was a local politician who agreed to give him a little extra freedom if they'd let him slide on this. Or it could be that they entrapped her. Maybe one of their own took this woman and drew her in and solicited something from her, and once it became obvious that she was committed to that course of action, they jumped out from behind the curtains, aha, we have you. And they grabbed her and brought her before Jesus. But they did not apply the law to the man. So they're very selective here because it serves their purposes. And the third problem with this situation is that these experts in the Jewish law, these religious leaders, these guys who are supposed to know Scripture backward and forward, they're actually misquoting the law of Moses. So Leviticus and Deuteronomy prescribe death for adulterers, but it, for both adulterers, but not particularly stoning. There is a particular verse, Deuteronomy 22:21, which gives very specific circumstances under which an adulteress, a woman in the act of adultery, might be stoned. It's kind of like, you know, capital punishment. This is a special circumstance. This is a heinous crime, and it deserves a special punishment, but only under these circumstances. And these Pharisees don't make any reference to those special circumstances. So, like 
they do often with Jesus. They misquote scripture, misapply it to serve their purposes. They twist Jewish law to make the scene more dramatic. You know, it'd be much more dramatic to say, Jesus, we want to see you throw rocks at this woman. I mean, that's really going to discredit him than just to say, is it okay for us to take her to the, the Jewish leaders and take her to court and uh, get a death sentence? What do you think we should do? It wasn't that. They were really trying to discredit Jesus in a very dramatic way. So Jesus responds in an unexpected way. He doesn't stand, ponder, and then give some address. Jesus looks at them, and then he kneels down, and he begins to write something in the dirt. We're not told what he writes. We don't know. I mean, there's speculation. Some scholars think he's writing down the name of the men that have brought her in, and he's writing next to it the name of the women that those men have flirted with or had inappropriate conversations with or had dreams about. I mean, that would certainly do it. Or maybe he's writing out the Ten Commandments. Or maybe he's writing those verses from Deuteronomy or Leviticus which convey to them, you guys are misquoting this, you're misapplying it, you're missing the point. One scholar suggested maybe he's writing the Tenth Commandment about not coveting your neighbor's wife. Whatever it is that he writes in seeing it, it, it carries some conviction for them. So finally, Jesus writes, and then he stands up. And he says the most incredible thing, this simple phrase. I got to tell you, if you have ever been caught in sin, if you've ever made a mistake and it comes to the forefront and people know it, and, and you know how mortifying that is. I mean, even if you've not been exposed. Most of us have some stuff that we expend an enormous amount of energy to hide from other people. And there are times where it's like, oh my gosh, that's going to come to light. And so you can imagine the sense of relief this woman feels when Jesus says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Other translations say, let the first stone be thrown by one among you who has not sinned. Or the sinless one among you, go first, throw the stone. There was only one sinless person in that gathering. Only one whose motives were pure. One who would know the heart of the accused. And that person chose not to throw rocks. The religious elite who dragged this woman into the temple wanted to shine a very bright spotlight onto this woman's sin. I mean, they wanted to like, look at this. Can you imagine how despicable this woman is? I mean, what could be worse? And yet, Jesus seems to take that spotlight, and he recognizes their comfort level being behind it, you know, in the shadows, and it's like he takes a spotlight and swivels it onto them. And he exposes their sin, their hypocrisy. And... It seems like they shrink back in the shadows. They're so ready to throw rocks at her, and yet, in response to what Jesus said, it's kind of like, <clears throat> I'll just uh, stand over here and <clears throat> you know, just kind of see what happens. So Jesus diffuses the situation with just one sentence. 
Now, what does this mean? You know, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Obviously, Jesus is saying, you need to be careful when you find yourself judging other people. Hopefully, you're not throwing rocks, but check your motives. Check your own life. Make sure you're scrutinizing your own stuff before you go to town on somebody else. I think of Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. This is a familiar passage. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So what Jesus says is, when it comes to judging, your first priority is you. You ought to be really good at judging yourself. Be quick to evaluate your own motives, your own heart, your own behavior. Slow to do that with others. Recognize your own shortcomings and failures. Admit your struggles, your brokenness, and your flaws. And if you want to receive mercy and grace from God, then be sure you're offering it to the people around you. Do you see how these passages line up? This is the exact same Jesus, the exact same teaching in each passage. God doesn't let us prescribe the consequences for the sins of others as much as we would like to. So when somebody rolls a stop sign and pulls out in front of you and you have to jam on your brakes and you're thinking, Lord, smite them, whatever that means. You know, like blow up their engine or, you know, let me just run into them once. Oh, that'd be so much fun, you know. God doesn't ask us to determine the kind. He doesn't trust us with that because we do a lousy job with it, really. And yet when it's us that's in a hurry and we maybe don't pay as much attention and we pull out and it's like, oh gosh, there's somebody right in my tailgate, you know, we want grace. So we also need to touch on what this passage doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we can't know what is right and wrong, okay? Right and wrong is very clear in God's word. And it doesn't mean that we who are followers of Jesus shouldn't hold each other accountable for living out the kind of lives we ought to. And in fact, Hebrews 5.14 tells us that the mark of a really mature believer is they understand through constant practice what's the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. Somebody who spends time in the Word of God, they know the difference. God's Word is the basis for how we know whether something is pleasing to Him or not. It's not our opinion. And there are many verses that tell us if we're in the family of God, we have a responsibility to challenge each other to our very best. So if you see someone else, Matthew 18, 15 says, and they're not living the way they ought to, you ought to go to them in private. You ought to challenge them. You ought to encourage them. You ought to talk to them about it. If they don't respond, take some other people with them. There are lots of verses in Scripture that talk about our need as a family to hold each other accountable for the right kind of living that lines up with God's Word. All right, the second big phrase here that I love let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. That's what Jesus says. Uh, I'm thinking about how this applies to us in our new building. You know, in, in like five months, we're not going to be here. We're going to be up the street on Gum Spring in a brand new building. And if God is gracious, we believe he's going to send all kinds of people to us. We have a gym and we want to open it to our community. We want kids playing on the soccer fields. We want people in our parking lot for food festivals and fundraisers for all kinds of community service events. And if God is gracious, there are going to be people who come to us who are just like us, broken, 
struggling, messed up, screwed up. And we need to be good at making them feel welcome. I've been a Christ follower for almost 45 years, so in all honesty, I've gotten pretty good at looking okay on the outside. That doesn't mean that on the inside, I don't have all kinds of garbage to deal with. But from the outside, I, I clean up pretty good. Sometimes people who are new to church, they don't come across that way. Their problems are all too evident. And it's easy sometimes to kind of pick up on things that are going on in people's lives or problems they're working through and to go like, well, that doesn't look good. And we need to resist that temptation with everything we've got because Jesus says, look, you are just as screwed up as anybody else out there. This is a place for screwed up people to figure out what God's love looks like and how to follow Christ. So let's just model that for them and demonstrate it. Our challenge as a church to offer love and grace to them and to be honest about our own shortcomings, our own struggles, to let them see how God loves us in spite of our mistakes, in spite of our flaws. We need to let them know that Gateway is a safe place to be authentic, a place where people with problems are welcome, because that's, that's who we are. Moving on, Jesus makes this statement, then he crouches down and he writes some more. And as he's, again, writing in the sand, these guys know it's not going to end well. The, the trap that they wanted to spring on them has actually entrapped them. They look ridiculous. And so one by one, starting with the oldest, they begin to leave. Now, we don't know why the oldest, although I'd like to think, as one of the resident old guys, that maybe it's because as you get older, you realize, you know, I'm not as together as I once thought I was. I mean, I've got a lifetime of mistakes and sin and brokenness. I'm really not qualified to pass judgment here. It's time for me to leave and to, to leave this in God's hands. So they leave. It's interesting, they're not done yet because later in this very same chapter, they pick up stones to throw at Jesus. They're so angry with him, they want to kill him. But at this point, they leave. And now it's just Jesus and the woman face to face. And then farther back behind them, maybe the people that had gathered originally to listen to Jesus' teaching. And they've just seen this incredible drama acted out in front of them. And they're trying to make sense of it and go like, wow, that was crazy. I had no idea that stuff happened in the temple every day. Since Jesus was sinless, realize he could have stoned the woman. And I don't know if like the woman we talked about last week, the Samaritan woman, she realized there was something different about Jesus, that he could look into her heart and he knew things about her. She might have still been terrified, like, okay, well, they left, but now I'm standing before this man of God, the one who teaches with authority, Oh my gosh, what's going to happen to me? She's humiliated, heartbroken, hopeless. She knows the penalty she deserves for her sin. And Jesus stands up and says, where are your accusers? Wasn't there anyone who condemned you, who pronounced judgment, who was ready to throw stones at you? The woman answers simply. And I'm guessing quietly, tentatively. She doesn't try to justify her actions or attack her accusers or explain away the situation. She just says, no one, sir. And Jesus says, then neither do I. I mentioned last week that uh, John 1.14 says, Jesus was full of grace and truth. So he was 100% grace, 
100% truth. And we see that again in this situation. We saw it how he interacted with the Samaritan woman last week. We see it here. Jesus doesn't say, hey, it's okay. Everybody commits adultery. You know, it's kind of a thing nowadays. And so uh, not a big deal. Don't worry about it. He's very truthful. He doesn't whitewash it. He doesn't excuse it. And yet he's also very gracious. And he says, if they don't condemn you, then neither do I. I said, uh, this passage lines up really well with other passages. Most of you know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The verse that comes right after it is very interesting. It says, for God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So what Jesus is saying to this woman is, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to rescue you. I'm here to offer you something different, not what you deserve. I'm offering you a fresh start, a clean slate. Jesus didn't condemn her. He rescues her and he says, go now and leave your life of sin. The King James says, go and sin no more. And what Jesus says here echoes Isaiah 55, 7 that says, let the wicked abandon their way of life let the evil abandon their way of thinking. Let them come back to God who is merciful. Come back to our God who is lavish with forgiveness. So this Jesus in this passage is the authentic Jesus. It sounds very similar to what he said to the woman who anointed him in Luke chapter 7. A woman whose sinful reputation was known to everyone there. And they were like, oh my gosh, how can you let that woman anoint you? Do you realize her history? Do you know what her reputation is? And Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's almost exactly what he's saying to this one. It's like, you know what? I know your past, but you are not defined by your past. It's time for you to move on with your life. And what you have done does not define who you can become. Don't let your failure or brokenness define who you are. God in heaven loves you in spite of every failure, every downfall, every hurt you've caused yourself or someone else. God's grace is sufficient to cover it. And if you turn to him and you receive the free gift of forgiveness that he offers, then you get a fresh start, a new beginning. A couple of weeks ago, I had talked about Nicodemus, and Jesus said to Nicodemus, it's like being born again. It's like a do-over on a cosmic scale. Last week, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, can you imagine drinking from living water that just refreshes your soul and quenches your spiritual thirst in a way that nothing else can be? So Jesus says to this woman, instead of walking on the path of sin, instead of living your life apart from God, doing your own thing, you can go, but walk in the direction of God. Don't squander the grace or the second chance. Leave your life of sin behind. Don't let it keep you from becoming who God created you to be. Now, I suspect there are some of you this morning that know full well your mistakes and your failures, and you have carried shame and guilt for a long time. And to you, Jesus would say exactly what he has said to this woman. He makes you the same offer. I want you to go. I want you to move forward. I want you to live the life that I created you for. Leave this life of sin. Leave trying to do this on your own. Leave 
behind all of your failure and all of your past, I can take care of that for you if you will trust me to do it. If you find yourself in this situation, I'd love to talk with you after the service. I'd love to pray with you. My email address is on the back of the program. If we don't have time today, email me and I'll meet up with you because I don't want you to miss out on this opportunity. Let me wrap up with a couple of practical alternatives to judging other people because my own experience is really easy to, to, to identify the wrong behaviors in others. I am really good at that. And I'm also pretty good at coming up with like some proposed consequences. God doesn't usually take them. But so for people like me, some options to consider would be to bless people instead of cursing them. Romans 12, 14 says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. So when someone mistreats you at work or at school, you bless them. You ask God to bless them. Instead of asking God to judge them and punish them and blow up their motor. It's like, well, Lord, help that idiot get to work on time, would you? Help him not to cause any more accidents. You can bless them. Number two, focus on the positives. And this is especially true with people you live with and work with, your friends, whoever you spend a lot of time with. Parents, if you have children at home, I am talking to you. Those of you with elderly parents, I am thinking of you. <laughs> You're going to see the imperfections of people around you, and it's going to drive you nuts. But instead of focusing on their weaknesses, focus on their strengths. Many of you know Philippians 4.8, where God says, whatever is true or noble or right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, you think about those things. Don't think about the mistakes they made. Oh my gosh, if you have a teenager and all you do is think about the things they get wrong, wow, you're going to explode. So you've got to focus on what they get right. So focus on the positives. Number three, pray for the people who make life difficult for you. Matthew 5, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Maybe we're talking about people in your extended family. Maybe we're talking about people on your baseball team, people you work with. You don't have to like them, but you need to love them. And you ought to pray for them, that God would change their heart and straighten them out, but also that he would change your heart and give you grace to apply to the situations that frustrate you. Number four, I have a, a Christian counselor that Jill and I have seen off and on over the last 20 years, and it has not only kept us married, it's kept me sane, it's kept me in ministry, and at some point in the past, he had said, you know, the things that really irritate you that you see in other people, what if that were God holding up a mirror to you? <clears throat> I'm sorry, what? What if God were using those things that you so easily see in other people to point out some flaws that you need to work on? So chew on that this week if that's applicable to you. And then number five, I would say regularly, methodically, Examine your heart. Search for sin in your own life. Instead of worrying about identifying in the lives of people around you, spend time daily asking God to search your heart. You'll hear advertisements on the radio for what one clinic calls an executive health experience. And what that means is it's a very expensive series of tests that are not covered by insurance and only executives can afford them. But they run all kinds of tests in over like eight hours at the clinic, they will test everything. They'll scan everything. 
they'll do this extensive battery of questions, and they will try to find whatever you might not be aware of. You may not have any symptoms, but they can tell you, because they scan everything, and they can tell you what you need to be aware of, what might come back to bite you down the road, what you need to do to get healthy and to stay healthy. What I'm talking about is something like that, but with regard to your spiritual health. So when the psalmist says in Psalm 139, search me, God, know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What he's talking about is deliberately setting aside time where nobody else is around and you're alone with God and you say, okay, God, I know of some of the things that I do wrong and I ask you to forgive me for losing my temper with my kids and I I should treat my wife with more respect and then the guy that pulled that, we already talked about that. Okay, but there's stuff that I don't know about God and I want to open my heart to you and I want to ask you to look at me. I want you to shine that spotlight on me so I don't let things go unattended to. It's a regular pattern of spending time with God, reflecting on the truth of his word, searching for areas of sin and struggle and perhaps even getting feedback from people who know you. If you're interested in trying to put this into practice, we've got a handout for you when you leave. You're welcome to grab one. You're welcome to leave them. But the greeters will have them. And it's just a list of questions that you can't rush through. I would hope maybe this week you might spend a little time just tuck it in your Bible and pick, I don't know, two of the questions. Just sort of wrestle with those one day and then go to a couple more the next day. But make this an active habit. Don't worry about what you see in the lives of other people. Make it your practice to look in your own heart and your own life for what it is that God wants to correct. I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook. (laughs) Those of you that know me, like if you look, it's like, wow, he last posted four years ago? What? But I saw an animal video this week on Facebook making the rounds. It's not a cat video or cute puppies or anything like that. So I asked Mike to throw this up there. I want you to take a look at just a few seconds of this video because to me it's just kind of weird. This is cows that have been in the barn for the whole winter. Now it's spring, and it's their first time getting outside in the spring for grass and in the field. And start looking at them just like, they look like puppies. (laughs) Do you realize a cow weighs up to 1,800 pounds? You know what's even scarier? The average cow generates 120 pounds of manure a day. And they're like, oh my gosh! That's the size of a small car. How do they do that? right? Here's how much of a Bible nerd I am. I'm preparing for this sermon, and I see that video like on Tuesday, and I go, oh my gosh, that's Malachi 4.2. Look at this verse on the screen. Okay, all right, fine. It's stupid, but it's true. Part of this verse shows up in an old hymn where we sing, the Son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. So the verse says, but you who revere my name, God's saying, those of you who know me and you reverence my name and you follow me with your whole heart, when the sun of righteousness will rise with healing and its rays and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. You know, if you know God and if you're like this woman and you know for sure what you deserve for all of your screw-ups, you know full well how much shame you would feel if your sin was exposed But Jesus has said to you, hey, go and sin no more. You're not tied to the past. I don't care about that. Leave it behind and go live the life I created you to live. 
I can't jump around like that kind of cow, even with lots more physical therapy. I mean, no creature that weighs 1,800 pounds ought to do that. No guy my age ought to do a happy dance in front of people on stage. So I'm not going to do it. But as believers, if we have tasted the kind of forgiveness and grace that this woman felt, Malachi says, man, you can go out and just leap and frolic and have a big time, just like some fat cow who got out for the, I mean, like, that's crazy. That's what it's supposed to be like for us. So if we've been forgiven and we've left the past behind, we ought to live such joyful lives that people go like, oh my gosh, they shouldn't be jumping around like that. That's embarrassing. I'm going to pray. I'm just going to start us by praying. And then I want to give you a couple of minutes to pray yourself, just to listen to God's voice. There's some rocks across the front here. And as you pray, and you think about this story, and you ask God to speak to your heart, if you feel comfortable, I'd love for you to come up here, just all across the front, and pick up one of these rocks and hold it in your hand. And I want you to feel the weight and think about the arrogance that would allow somebody to feel like they had the right to take someone else's life. I mean, that's God's job, to judge sin, not ours. Let that sink in. If you want, you can take one of these rocks home. Actually, it would be easier for me if you took all of them home so I don't have to carry them out of here. But take it home. And maybe you stick it on your front porch so every morning when you leave to go to work, you're reminded like, yep, I'm going to not pick up my rocks today. I'm going to leave them there. I'm going to leave that to God. I'm going to focus on what's going on in my life. Maybe... I don't know, if you stick it on your desk at work, people might be worried. But wherever you want to put it as a reminder. So let's pray. Jesus, I am just blown away by the power of your word. And the way that it can change our lives and change who we are. I am so grateful for the words you said to this woman that echo and resonate in our hearts today. Let he who is without sin throw the first stone. Let that sink deep into our hearts. Remind us this week when we're tempted. And Jesus, I thank you for that phrase, go and sin no more. for all of the freedom and the joy that that means for us today. And I pray that you'd help us to live out that joy in a way that blesses the lives of people around us and that points them in your direction. The grace that you've shown us, let us reflect it to the people around us. Pray that you'd speak to us in these next few moments, Lord. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest without you. I fall apart You're the one 
that guides my heart Lord I need you Yes. 
Great is your faithfulness, O oh God. You wrestle with the sinner's heart. You lead us by still waters and to mercy. And nothing can keep us apart. So remember your people. Remember your children. Remember your promise, oh God. Your love and justice, God You use the weak to lead the strong You lead us in the song of your salvation And all your people sing along Remember your promise, remember your promise, O oh God. Everybody have a great Sunday.